in John 3, a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He's looking for answers. He wants to know what is real. He, he wants to know more about God, and for that reason, he's wondering, really, who is Jesus? And Jesus, in this conversation, reveals the core problem of humanity, and it concerns this issue of what is real, what is Uh, What does it mean to actually know God? So in verse 3, Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word translated again seems to be deliberately ambiguous. It has a double meaning. It can mean either again, as most translations have it, or it can mean above. So interpreters have long argued about whether this means born again or born from above. But this ambiguity is probably intentional on John's part to say that this is a birth, a new birth, being born again, but it is also a birth from above. But what's more important for us here is these words... Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let those words sink in for just a moment. He is incapable, unable to see the kingdom of God. This is the extent of our problem. Without a radical rebirth, we remain blind. When I emphasize that Christianity is not about what we do or what we offer to God, this is why I'm saying that. We are absolutely unable unless God does something for us. Now, I hope that hearing that and seeing it here in John 3, verse 3, that that your perspective might change. Any sense of self-righteousness or pride should be obliterated. Why? Because we aren't responsible for the new birth. We can't make ourselves come alive. One of the dangerous ideas in so much of what passes as Christian thinking is that what we really need to do is to be a better person. I think some feel the impulse right now as they look at the world and they think, well, the, the, the virtue of people's declining or, or whatever. But do you see that that isn't the remedy? Do you see that isn't what the Bible says? Unless he is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, people are not born again by doing good things. That's impossible. That makes no sense of the language. This is why moralism is a dead end. This is why people who sit in churches and say, what the people out there need to do is clean up their lives and get right with God, are dead wrong. It's a false gospel. It can't produce a new birth. And honestly, the reason they're saying those things is likely because they too are blind to the gospel. Now, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? 
if you've spent time around the church, your mind immediately will go to the kingdom of God equals heaven. But you've got to resist that because that's not what the Bible means when it talks about the kingdom of God. Or, for that matter, Matthew often uses the the phrase kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to God's jurisdiction or reign. It would be much better to translate this as the reign or the king, uh, the, the kingship of God. Experiencing the kingdom of God begins at the new birth. So what, what, what does that mean? New birth is to be brought into God's way of life, right? to be brought under the kingship of God to be brought into the jurisdiction of God, to be a citizen of the government of God. This is all over Philippians, by the way. So Philippians 1.27, Paul's exhortation to the Philippian believers, do be, be worthy citizens of the gospel. Right? Or, or later he says, your citizenship, this is in chapter 3, your citizenship is in heaven. Do do you realize what he's saying? That you have come to live under a different reign with a different king. And so the new birth is to see the kingdom of God, this way of God, this way of Jesus with clear eyes and understanding to see the way things are, to have the scales fall from our eyes and to see for the first time. That is what it means to be born again. Now, I hesitate to use that language even because it's been so maligned. Nicodemus understands how challenging this language is. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? His question is simply this, How is this possible? And what in the world are you talking about? And so Jesus answers in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless... Here it is again, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, entry is not simply salvation and floating off to heaven when you die. Okay, the Bible doesn't even teach the sort of floating off theology. Uh, that is far more from popular culture. What we see at the end is, is God making all things new and dwelling with his people on earth. But notice what Jesus says. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless this new birth happens. And this new birth he characterizes as one of water and the spirit. So it is a birth of water and the spirit. That is the new birth. And unless this happens, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Doing good things cannot bring us into life with God. We need a birth of of water and the Spirit. Now, the most difficult aspect of Jesus' statement is the part about water. What what does this mean, to be born of water? This has been debated for for centuries, in fact, uh, millennia, and there are many interpretations that have been offered. 
Uh, some have seen this as an obvious reference to baptism, and there is certainly a loose connection to it. I will concede that. But the mere act of passing someone through water does not produce the new birth. And I do not believe Scripture teaches that. I think when people find verses that appear to say that in Scripture, they are mixing metaphors with reality. And so the Bible often uses the metaphor of baptism to talk about the spiritual birth. And I do not think it always equates to the physical act of baptism. That is, I do not believe the Bible teaches that when one is baptized, they are saved. So the mere act of passing them through the water does not produce the new birth. And a better interpretation is that this is language about the new covenant. Now, we spent some time talking about the new covenant last week. This new covenant is what God does through Christ by the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, God promised to do something new to transform his people. He said, I'm going to cleanse you and I'm going to make you obedient. God, in this promise, takes the initiative and God does the necessary work. A key passage for our understanding today is Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I, says the Lord, I will sprinkle clean water on you. So there's our water reference. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Water, then, based on Ezekiel 36, which is the background, water, then, is a reference to God's cleansing and purifying work. And notice that here in Ezekiel, the work of cleansing is connected to this giving of the Spirit. I will wash you, and I will put my Spirit within you. Jesus says, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, unless God acts upon a person in this way, the way promised in Ezekiel 36, then he cannot enter into life with God. Now, how, how does all of this happen? The simple answer is through Jesus' death and resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. How are we pure and righteous? Through an exchange. Jesus becomes sin for our sakes. That's how we are washed. That's how we are pure. That is how we are clean. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul gives a long list of what we would typically identify as sins. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now look, he does not say, you were like that, but now you've cleaned yourself up. 
No, he doesn't say that at all. He says you were washed, which means somebody else washed you. The the verb here is in the passive voice in the original, which means someone acted upon you. You are not the actor. And then he says you were sanctified. That is, someone else made you holy. You were justified. That is, someone else made you righteous. We did nothing. How is that possible? Because he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. When we talk about salvation, we're talking about something that God does unilaterally, without our help. The Father chooses, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit seals. And like a newborn baby, we contribute nothing. We come empty-handed to the table. This is what it means to be saved or born again. Look at verse 6 in John 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So there is a world of difference. And he's not talking flesh here as just the physical body. So the Bible uses flesh to talk about our fallen nature. And our best efforts, he says, leave us blind. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But the Spirit's work produces something new. Now, this is hard to take because it makes us completely powerless. It strips us from our pride. It means counting on our religious activity means absolutely nothing. That's hard to swallow, isn't it? Think about all the ways that we try to manipulate God or to prove our goodness before God. And Jesus says this to Nicodemus in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Something new has to happen to you. Then he gives this analogy in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, there's a word play here that's important to point out. The word for, uh, for wind and the word for spirit are one word in both Hebrew and Greek, the, the languages of the Bible. And so here in Greek, because we're in the New Testament, when John writes the wind, that's the same word, pneuma, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma spirit. And what's the comparison here? The wind can't be seen, nor can the spirit be seen. The activity of God's Spirit is invisible. It acts not in external ways, but it acts upon the inner man. Notice the wind blows where it wishes. In other words, the wind acts of its own initiative. And so it is with the Spirit. The Spirit moves and blows where he wills. And the Spirit accomplishes the new birth unilaterally. 
Now, how does the Spirit accomplish this new birth? The Spirit accomplishes this new birth by opening our eyes to the gospel. I think this is clear in the next series of verses, so verses 9 through 15 here in John 3. Nicodemus struggles with what Jesus has said, and Jesus says, you don't understand these things because you reject me. That's why he says in verses 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus here, he's talking about an episode in the book of Numbers where the Israelites are spared God's judgment. And he's saying his death will accomplish the same, namely freedom from judgment. But the key here is Christ. The Spirit opens our eyes to see the worth and the value of Jesus. The Spirit opens our eyes to see our inability and deadness. The Spirit opens our eyes to see the worthlessness of our good works. This is why salvation is entirely on the basis of faith or trust. So when we talk about salvation, we say Salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone. And what we mean here is that you and I don't do anything to contribute to the equation. We do not make ourselves righteous or pure. We do not wash ourselves. We simply trust Jesus. Do you trust what Jesus has done? Do you see his work as sufficient? Or are you constantly worried that you need to do something to prove your worth before God? Or are you still relying on your own efforts? Do you, do you secretly think that what you do is what makes you right with God? Your answer to those questions or the, is the difference between the person who has been born again and one who has not. Now, we might feel a bit like Nicodemus and say, how can these things be? You may think I'm making stuff up and say, no, no, I think you've got to do more. You, you, there's something I've got to do. Let me show you even more clearly in one more passage. So 2 Corinthians, I want to take you to chapters 3 and 4. And in this passage, Paul is talking about the difference between believers and unbelievers. And he talks about those, specifically he's talking here about uh, people of the Jewish faith in his world. Paul talks about those who read the Old Testament without Christ. And he says, their minds are hardened and a veil lies over their heart. So they're blind. Then he says this in verse in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.16, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Then verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Do you see it? Do you see what I'm talking about? The Spirit removes the veil. That is freedom. So where do we get our vision? From the Spirit. Trying to reconcile ourselves to God apart from Christ is like trying to find a diamond in a dark cave without a flashlight. It's foolish, and it will never happen. 
but there's more than just our own inability, according to Paul. Someone also blinds us. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world, i.e. Satan, blinds us so that we can't see the light. Just let it sink in for a minute. Such is our problem. Now, I remind you of what Paul said just verses before. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Well, we've talked about freedom from judgment, but freedom from the blindness. Freedom from the God of the world. The Spirit opens our eyes to see the gospel. The Spirit pulls the veil away so we can see, so we can understand, so we can see our helplessness and see our remedy, Christ and Christ alone. Here's the question you need to be able to answer with absolute clarity. What can you do to gain freedom? What can you do to regain sight? The answer is nothing. Only Christ can free you. The Spirit opens our eyes to the gospel. Now this is incredibly good news. If the Spirit opens our eyes to the gospel... This means the Spirit enables us to worship, right? Our natural state is blind, rejecting the things of God, dull, oblivious, apathetic. And by the way, if that's, if that's where you feel like you are, that is something you need to take to God. I tell you that stuff's dangerous, and it is. But the Spirit opens our eyes to see the gospel with blinding clarity. When we see the depth of our sin and the sufficiency of Jesus's death, we can do no other than worship him. And it is the Spirit of God who enables us to worship. Let me offer you a diagnostic. Do the things of God thrill your heart? Does the gospel overwhelm you and lead you to worship? Your answer to those questions will say something about the state of your vision. If you find no real worship in your heart, that may be a sign of blindness. That may be a sign that your religion is keeping you in the dark. That your moral striving, that your self-righteousness has blinded you to the gospel. There are so many areas of gospel blindness, especially in our context, especially in the, the, uh, the Bible Belt or the South where cultural Christianity completely blinded itself to the gospel. You know, being a Christian is being a good person. Being a Christian means you go to church. Being a Christian means you're a good American. Are, are you kidding? None of that has anything to do with the gospel. It's not the gospel. And those things will blind you. Those things 
will keep you in the dark. Only the light of the gospel can restore your sight. If you're aboard with the things of God, if they're far less interesting than politics or sports, let's say, this may be a warning sign. It may be. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I wonder why it is that in churches like ours, we find far more vigor to talk about the electric bill or the polity or any number of other things. But when we begin talking about the attributes of God, the splendor of the gospel, the sufficiency of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, our eyes begin to glaze over and we find it awfully easy to go to sleep. Only the Spirit can open your eyes. Ask yourself, can I identify the work of the Spirit in my life? Do I rejoice in the gospel? It's good news that is evidence that the Spirit is working. Do I worship Jesus? Good news that is the evidence of the Spirit. Do I desire to obey Him? Am I growing in holiness? Am I interested in knowing God? Do I have an increasing love and commitment to His Word? Do I have an increasing love and commitment to His people, the church? These evidences show that the veil has been removed. Now, if you look at those and you say, no, no, I don't. I, the, the, the worship of Jesus is far from my heart, then take the warning. Take the warning. Because what we need is not a cleaned up life. We need the Spirit to produce a miracle in us, a new birth. Well, let me say one more thing. The work of the Spirit produces worship. This worship produces unbreakable joy. Let me just show you this in 1 Peter, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Right? Remember when I said that we don't do this? Well, here it is, as plain as day. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is all very close to John 3, and it confirms God's unilateral work in our salvation. Then Peter talks about rejoicing in this living hope. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So even in difficulties, there is joy. Why? Well, that's in verse 7. These trials produce a key result, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The goal is the praise, 
glory, and honor of Jesus Christ. That is a life of worship. The goal is to worship Jesus. The goal is to see Jesus glorified. You see that? That is, so he has caused you to be born again to this living hope so that now you suffer trials because your desire is to worship Jesus. And finally, there's verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Is that your experience? Unbreakable love and joy in Jesus. As I warned last week, cold Christianity is dead. It is at home in the morgue, not the empty grave. Cultural Christianity will keep you in the dark. But the sign of life, the sign of the new birth is a heart beating for the gospel. It is a heart that worships the living God. It is a heart that loves him and rejoices in him. This is why Jesus says in John 6, 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words that I have spoken to you. The gospel of Jesus produces life through the Spirit. The Spirit empowers us to worship because the Spirit brings the new birth. Now think for a moment, just as we conclude here, what's the difference between you and somebody else? Right, so, so if you're thinking, I'm a Christian because I've made better decisions, or I'm wiser, or I'm more virtuous, or I had better parents, then I'm afraid you're off course. Because the difference is this. The Spirit opened your eyes, or the Spirit did not open your eyes. Can you identify the work? A.W. Pink once said, the new birth is a miracle. The Spirit is the one who does the miracle. The wind blows where it wills, and we don't know. The Spirit produces the miracle of the new birth, which leads to worship and joy. And so I just want to come back to, to what I've said. Unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. If you find that there is coldness when it comes to the worship of God, if you find that there is apathy to the gospel of Jesus, then I'm afraid what you're seeing are dangerous signs that perhaps the Spirit has not acted. Now, what in the world do you do? Well, here's the thing. If you hear that and you say, this is bad, this is dangerous, then rejoice because your eyes are being opened. All you need to do is look to Christ. Believe upon Christ. Believe upon him. Trust him. And what I mean by that is trust that his death is sufficient for your sins. That his death is enough to make you right before God. 
That his death can set you free from sin, Satan, and death. And that his resurrection is giving you new life. Trust it. Fall on it. Throw yourself on it. And then worship him. And what do we do in response to these big, amazing doctrines about what God has done in our salvation and to change our hearts to worship and to rejoice in the gospel. All we do is continue to worship in response. And all we do here is we continue to act out our lives in obedience as a response. See, the Bible's order is always, here is what God has done. Now go and do this in light of what God has done. It is always the indicative followed by the imperative. It is always, here is what has happened. Now go do this. And so for Christians, when we read Scripture, we meet commands. But listen, those commands aren't a means to making ourselves right with God. They are a means of gratitude because our eyes have been opened to see the kingdom of God. And we know that that is the way we ought to live. That is the difference. So in response to what God has done through Christ by the Spirit, We worship, we rejoice, and we obey. 